This is the Daily Planet Special News Bulletin. Lois and Clark is our jam. We're talking about Terry Dean and Superman. We'll cover it all, at least we'll do what we can. And now, it's time for the show. And welcome back to Lois and Clark, the new podcast of Superman. I'm Matt Truex, and I could not be more excited for the interview coming today. Uh, Today's guest is a prolific TV writer who's written on such shows as The X-Files, Angel, Firefly, Wonderfalls, Drive, Dollhouse, Terriers, Feud, American Horror Story, Ratchet, 911, and 911 Lone Star, to name a few. He is one of the first TV writers whose name that I knew when I first started being interested in TV writing because it was on every show I loved. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that he had written for the first show I loved, Lois and Clark. So welcome to the show, Mr. Tim Minear. Tim, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I mean, just looking at your IMDb credits, I'm exhausted too. (laughs) So truly, Tim, like I knew your name before I even knew that you had worked on the show just because, you know, I'd watched it as a kid. Um, but uh, you were a part of the the Angel, Firefly, and then Drive, by the way, you know, Terrier's mix um, that I was watching and, and, you know, learning the people that were writing these shows. Um, but we are here to talk about Lois and Clark, of course, um, which, you know, basically pretty early in your career, uh, you've seemingly worked nonstop in the industry since then. Yeah. Um, but where were you in your career uh, you know, by your telling of it, that you found your way into Lois and Clark. Well, it's interesting. I um, that was my first staff job. That was my mm-hmm. first network show. Um, but I, I sort of came into it in a pretty ass backwards kind of fashion. I mean, this was a long time ago, and back in those days, um, you'd write a a spec script. You would generally pick like an existing show. Mm-hmm. Something that everyone considered to be, you know, not a cheesy show, but something that's considered good, like a Law and Order or something. Okay. And you'd write a sample of, you know, you'd write your spec version of an episode of one of those shows, and and you'd use that as a sample, which was a pretty good way to, um, for people to gauge if you could write TV, right? Now, mm-hmm. now everybody's writing plays and pilots and their little features, and and it's sort of impossible to know if they've got it right because there's no, there's nothing to sort of judge it against, right? But when I was, when you know, back then I had done, um, I mean, I didn't go to film school really. I took a film class at Cal State Long Beach and I, and I grew up making Super 8 films in Whittier. And so I, I always thought I'd be a director and then I just ended up writing. <clears throat> and then somebody said, oh, you should write for TV. And the first spec I wrote was a Murphy Brown spec because I thought, okay. all right, sitcoms. Sure. Which was totally not my thing. And, um, and I had done, I had done, the first, the first paying job I got was to write some uh, f- freelance episodes of, of the family channel Zorro that shot in Spain. And th- that's a whole nother story of how that happened. <laughs> but I wrote like three episodes of this show and there were half hours, but it was like a teaser, two acts and a tag. And I wrote and I, I wrote one and they were like, oh, that, that was pretty good. And they shot it and they didn't rewrite it. And I didn't know that that wasn't normal. So that like, was a big deal. Like, if yeah. you, like even if you're on a staff, generally it'll be rewritten. But um, to write a uh, an outside 
freelance script and kind of have it not rewritten. I, I guess that was a thing, but again, I didn't know. And just out of curiosity, <laughs> is that a thing where they're assigning you a story or you're coming in going like, I came in and they're letting you. I came you. in and I pitched. I okay. mean, I actually, you know, I was, I'm kind of lucky in that I had to kind of come up the hard way. Like I was a production assistant. And the first thing I did was um, I was an intern on a movie called Reanimator. Mm -hmm. And um, we were sort of slave labor. We worked for free. I don't even know if you can, I didn't even know if you can do that anymore. I don't even know if it's legal to have, you know, unpaid interns, but right. it was a, it was a huge boon for, for me because it got me inside a, a, on a production and, and I got to sort of see how it worked. At any rate, I wrote these Zoros and then the guy that I wrote them for, Bob McCullough, he was going to do this show called High Tide, which was this hour syndicated surfer detective show that weirdly looks a lot like Terriers when I when I look back. On it. <laughs> but it was with it was Rick with Rick Springfield and this Canadian actor named Yannick Besson. And it was going to shoot in New Zealand and it was supposed to take place in Malibu. But it was very old school, like network TV, except again, it wasn't really network TV. It was the syndicated, syndicated thing. Yeah. Here it aired at 3 p.m. on Saturday or something. And so uh, I wrote one of those and he was like, oh, hey, that's pretty good. Why don't you come down to New Zealand and we'll just write a bunch of these things. Now, I had no experience. I had no experience writing television. Uh, that was like the first hour that I'd ever written. And I, but I'd written those like three or four episodes of Zorro for him. Right. So I was like, OK, where's New Zealand? And then I, <laughs> I, I like ran out and I got a, a I got a passport and I went to New Zealand. And again, this was not the normal way you get on a show. There was no staff. It was this guy who, who had sort of done a million things, uh, you know, Dynasty. And I think he did Next Generation for a minute. And okay. like, he, he was like he came from like old school 70s, 80s network TV. Yeah. So I flew down to New Zealand to write some episodes with him. And I outlasted him like he quit before <laughs> before the show was done. And we made 22 episodes of this thing. And there was no staff. Like I would go in oh, I'd, and your I'd, boss I'd, left before the end of the first season. And, and, well, three of them left. <laughs> like by the time, by the time we were done, we, we'd got like every time one of these EPs would quit, they'd bring in another guy who was a little bit more of a has-been than the guy before uh -huh. until finally it was like, you know, back when we did the rifleman. So whatever, <laughs> so I'm down there in New Zealand and I'm, I'm, I'm writing one of these things a week. Mm -hmm. Like I'd go in, I'd pitch an idea, I'd write an outline. I said, mm -hmm, um, like, that's easy. Like, so you're the writing staff at this I'm point. I'm the writing staff, not yeah. knowing that this is not how it works. Mm. So I, so I'd go down there and I, I, you know, I kind of mull over a story with the, sh with the showrunner. I'd go off, I'd write a beat sheet or an outline. He'd give me a couple notes. Then I'd go off and I would like churn out, you know, 50 pages in seven days. And they were shooting one of these a week. And so I was writing one of them a week. So yeah. I, ended, I was supposed to go down there for a couple of months. I was down there for a year. I was a, I was an illegal alien at some point because my visa had run out. I had no business being in the country. And, but I was like churning out these episodes. And by the time it was done, I think I'd written 17 of those episodes for the first season, not knowing that that was not even possible this is incredible you had like a boot camp on boot television camp. yeah it was, it was completely boot camp so when i came back i had an agent who kind of fired me while i was gone well i came back well you, you never came back yeah no i i mean eventually i did but I, I came back and i'd written there were like maybe three or four of these scripts that i thought were really good 
And they were, they were good, but mm-hmm. they were high tide and nobody wanted to, it's right. not like you're going to give your high tide scripting, like get hired onto Lois and Clark, for instance. <laughs> so I came back and then I, and then they decided to shoot the second season of it in San Diego. Hilariously enough, because Terriers, we shot in San Diego on the same sound stages many is, years later. This is all so poetry. I, it rhymes. Yeah. It, 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 it does. It, yeah. it, there's an echo. <laughs> so uh, I came back and, um, and and nobody would read these scripts as samples. And so my agent, my manager were telling me, you have to write specs of shows that people have heard of. <laughs> and I'm like, but these are produced episodes of television. They're like, nobody cares. Nobody. No, it's like, you know, here's my silk stocking spec. Like nobody's right. going to. So, um, so they're like, you're going to have to probably write five. You're going to have to write at least three. You're going to have to do a picket fences and you're going to have to do a, a, a law and order. And you're going to need to do a, a you know, they, they, there were certain standard shows that people sure. were writing. It sounds like sitcoms are gone for you at this point too. Sitcoms already. was never a thing. Yeah, never. Sitcoms okay. Never a thing. Uh, and also I never, I would not have worked well in sitcoms because they're not, it's our shows, you know, in the best of, in the best of all worlds, you go off and you actually, the thing that your name is on, you've actually written. Right. In sitcoms, my understanding is it's a bunch of writers sitting around a table and everything is sort of gang banged in the room. Right. And it's, always, it's constantly changing, which is what makes the great ones great. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that I think like Veep is always like, on just on, was always on the screaming edge of not having any scripts because they were constantly like writing it as they were going. Right. And like you said, it shows, but that's... Everyone who works for me would say I work the same way. At any rate... Uh, they're like, you have to write a spec. So the only show that, so I I was going to write either a Boston public or a law and order. And I realized if I was going to write a law and order, I'd have to go to law school. And if I was going to write a Boston public, I'd have to finish high school. (laughs) So I knew that these were not for me. It was going to be too much work. So I decided the only show that I actually watched was the X-Files. And I watched it religiously. So that was a show that I knew inside and out. So I thought, I'll, I'll write an X-Files spec. That's what I will do. So I wrote, so, and I had an idea for an episode. And uh, I had one idea. And what I did was I got a hold of as many produced X-Files scripts as I could. I had Morgan and Wong scripts and Chris Carter scripts and Derek sure. Morgan scripts. I had, and Howard Gordon scripts. Like I had all these scripts. And I would, and then I deconstructed them. I went through and sort of figured out almost scientifically, like yeah. how many pages is a teaser? Where does the first act break? What did the first act, what does the act break you know, do? What is the act one break? How is that different from the act two break? How is that hmm. different from the act three break? What happens in act four? Um, and then I would take those scripts and kind of fan them just to see what they look like. Because different shows look different, right? In the X-Files, right. there was a lot of black on the page, a lot of typing, a lot of description, and they looked a certain way. So I wanted my spec to look like that. Totally. So I wrote this spec script and, um, and I gave it to my agents and they're like, now you're going to have to write this and that and the other thing. And this is going to sit at the bottom of, you know, a bunch of piles of things and no one's ever going to read it. And it's going to take a while and you're not going to, it's going to be a long time before you get work. Anyway, I wrote this thing in like seven days and three days later I had a job. Like they they sent that script out. And then I I met uh, with a guy who was making another syndicated show called Two that was a very low rent version of The Fugitive. <laughs> and, I, and so I, I got my first like freelance there and that was like a king's ransom because you know High Tide was not a Writers Guild show and I was not making Writers Guild money. 
Right. And in fact, you know, they were like, we'll pay you $15,000 for a script, which was a fortune. Right? Yeah, mind blowing, I'm sure. And uh, but then when I was in New Zealand, they're like, we've decided it's going to be 10. We're not going to pay you 15 <laughs> anymore. It's going to be 10. And so there's no union. There's no, you know, it's right. like, well, what am I going to do? Either I take it or I don't. You're in so New I, Zealand so already. So what? And I'm in New Zealand. So I took yeah. it. Uh, so anyway, I wrote this X-Files spec and it got sent out. And literally like five days later, I had this meeting and then I got this episode of two. And then like the next day after I got that assignment, uh, I got a call uh, to go meet at Lois and Clark. So I went and I met Incredible. with Ross Lemming and Brad Buckner and yeah. went into this meeting and it was the first meeting. It, well, the funny thing is when I met with um, uh, the guy who was running two, David Levinson, may he rest in peace. He was a great guy. And um, when I met with him, he was, he, he was, and he was very old school too, but he was like smart, funny, human. Like he was, he was terrific. Sure. But when I, when I went in to meet with him, he's like, you're right. Good. You're right. Good. This is a really good script. This, your spec script's really good. And I can tell you know what you're doing because I look at your resume and it's nothing but shit. <laughs> so, I know, so I know that you're, that you learn the hard way. Which is exactly true, right? Fair enough, yeah. A lot, a lot of young writers that I know sort of come up through programs or their assistants in offices or they get into the world that way. Sure. What I had to do was I had to go out into people's offices that I'd never met before, Joss Whedon, for instance. Sure. And I had to sit in front of them and I had to pitch them five ideas for an episode. Here's an idea. Here's a teaser. Here's a twist. Here's a turn. Here's the theme. And I would have to, I would have to learn how to go in and, and like do that, which yeah. really makes you think about story and 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 you know pitching is telling the story it's selling the story it's it's a it's a slightly different skill than actually writing the story and not everybody can do all of it anyway, there must be a confidence with knowing that you've done basically a season of television at that point though even though nobody saw it that like you know that you can deliver whatever you're pitching you know you can craft together a hundred percent that yeah. i was i had i had developed these muscles and nobody had seen me do it yeah. so all, all they knew was suddenly here's this x-files script and it's the first thing this guy has ever written we've never seen anything because it was my first sample i was too busy no writing home stuff at... that was getting made right. to actually write a sample right so anyway after writing however many episodes of high tide and zorro and just low low budget straight to video movies sure like i get paid to write movies. these straight to dvd movies or not even dvd it was a videotape back then yeah and they'd pay me $500 up front and $500 when it was done. So I wouldn't take more than a week because I needed the rent. Yeah. So I, I would just blow through these things. So at any rate, I go and I meet with, with Brad and Eugenie. And Eugenie's kind of looking at me and she's like, so is this a produced episode of The X-Files? Because they, they thought it was a, an episode. I'm like, no, it's a spec. It's not, it's not because the other thing too is like, if you're on a show, and you send out a, you know something with your name on it from the show you were on, the person who's reading it doesn't know if you actually wrote it. Sure. Right? Uh, and as a matter of fact, um, on more than one occasion, I have had samples sent to me by agents from shows that I ran. And I would be reading something I wrote. I'm like, God. I know your client's oh name is on this. I wrote this, right? So that's happened to me more than once. So at any rate, I'm meeting with Brad and Eugenie, and it's the first kind of meeting I've had on a network show. Sure. I mean, a couple, I guess I met with Chris Carter, but it was like a meet and greet. It wasn't, um, it was just like, I, I would go on these meet and greets all the time. My agent would set these things up. You go in, you meet somebody, here's a writer you should know. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, not knowing that I'm actually interviewing for a job. 
So anyway, I met with, with Brad and Eugenie. I watched a bunch of episodes of the show. I wasn't super familiar with the show. Okay. But I watched a bunch of episodes. I wasn't asked to come in and pitch anything, but they had read this, they had read this spec. So I'm meeting with them and 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 they're asking about me. And I'm and then I get up to leave at the end of this meeting, and I'm not sure how it went. And uh, so I I said to the assistant on the way out, can I just I have one more thing I want to say? And they're like, well, okay. And so they they knocked on the door and they let me poke my head back in. And I'm like, I, I don't know if during all of that that I mentioned that I can write the shit out of this show if you let me. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm not sure if I made that clear. And then sort of on the drive home, I got a call and they, they hired me. Awesome. And so, and so that was my, that was my first job. And it was actually a great experience because I came in, I was an executive story editor. I was I mean, I skipped over staff writer. I skipped over story editor because I, yeah, I did I, have a lot of produced material. Uh, and so somehow they convinced them to uh, hire me as an executive story editor. Which for this and, show, like we all know what a writer means, but like even myself, like what, what does that mean in the terms of, in terms of Lois and Clark here for, you know, executive story? All, all, all those all those titles mean are they're just um, they, all they do is they kind of connote the level that you're at. Okay. So there's a there's a staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, executive producer. Okay, so you, so they bumped you up it, the food it's chain. All, it's all the, it's all the same thing, except yeah. you become you you start producing the show, um, and so that that's all that means. It's not like I'm editing stories. Right. I know I know that if I know people are thinking like, oh, they're the editor. They must get the script and then they edit it. Yeah. Like it's like no showrunner is going to let you know some you know peon on the food chain edit their scripts but essentially uh, because you had all this experience you were bumped up the food chain a little bit at the yeah, show yeah. and got the title and that yeah i got to okay. jump over it slightly but it was a great experience because um and, and it was also again it was an unusual experience because it wasn't a traditional writer's room so i still hadn't had that experience yeah because they had some high-end people there higher way higher than me and they they didn't have a writer's room like like the thing you may imagine really going, okay and there's like a big room and there's a table and couches and nerf right. balls and snacks and a big whiteboard and it's people pacing and you know using a hand exerciser and like all those man comics everywhere have. yeah yeah exactly um they didn't they didn't have that so i there was never a writer's room that that brad and eugenie ran and then the other writers that were there there was like brad kern who was like i think a supervising producer or maybe maybe a co-EP. And then there was, um, the, you know, there were a couple people and they were all, they all outranked me. And there was no, like I said, there was no writer's room. The way it would work on that show is I would go in and I'd have like, here, here are five ideas for episodes. And they would pick one that they liked and they would say, go off and write an outline on that. It was very similar to what I had been doing yeah. for three or four years. And I'd go off into my little office and then I would, you know, put together an outline and maybe I'd grab, you know, Brad Kern or somebody to come in and kind of bounce it off. Actually, John McNamara was super helpful. He he was sort of this rising star at the time. And he wasn't really there full time because he was like doing a pilot. And so he wasn't there full time, but he was still kind of consulting. OK, but he had written a lot of, the, you know, fancy episodes right before I got there. And I, I came in in the last season. And I come up with this idea for Brutal Youth, which was the first episode that I wrote. And uh, I just had this idea of a super villain who was sucking the youth out of victims to uh, to regenerate old people. 
right. or, or and so the idea was you know the the old criminal who couldn't remember where he stashed his money so she's going to make him young again right and she's going to look beautiful again and yeah. she's going to look beautiful again and and so it's all about you know youth and then there was sort of a a a thing in there where like Lois had just they it's like the first episode after they got married and she realizes oh wait he's not going to age and I'm going to turn into an old lady and so it was just a way to kind of explore these themes of of mortality and aging and loss of beauty and all that stuff. And I remember sitting down with, um, with McNamara and I'm like, there's, there's just something missing from the story. And he's like, all right, so who on the show symbolizes youth? And it's like, ah, Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy. So that was actually McNamara's uh, contribution to that story is that it should be Jimmy. And then once it was Jimmy, I realized, oh, so this is about Lois is afraid to get old. Jimmy wants to be older than he actually is. Clark isn't going to age. The villain has her own issues. Um, and, uh, and hey, wait, maybe what we do. And then it's sort of also based on like a million reruns of Star Trek that I watched growing up. <laughs> the episode where it's like, we're on the planet where we're aging super fast. And right, we're going we to go find the antidote. Right. Like that. Uh, and uh, and then the idea was, oh, we'll get Jack Larson. We'll get the actor who played Jimmy. I was going to say, where does that come in? Because that's so, yeah. It's just it would it just it just seemed to follow. I mean, huh. obviously Jack Larson looked nothing like uh, like the actor who was playing Jimmy Olsen <laughs> on that show, but uh, it just it seemed like a fun idea. Yeah, very cool. And, but, and what I will but, say is it was a it was a phenomenal experience for me because Brad and Eugenie never rewrote me. Incredible. Like, like everything everything that you saw that had my name on it and a few yeah. things that didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wrote like they would have me. When there was a script that came in that had problems, they would give it to me, and they're like, "Here, fix this." Oh wow! So you were kind of like, yeah. It's like there was an episode. I can't remember the which the episode title, but throw I remember. It, yeah, throw it at me. Yeah. It was like three in the morning. I'm like, I gotta get this done, and I'm like, I, I, I what do I? I know I'll, I'll, they'll go to a Chinese restaurant and they'll have their entire conversation under the table. AKA Superman. Yeah. Awesome. AKA episode. Superman. So like, yes. I mean, I wrote that sequence, like, I mean, whatever rewriting I did on that script, I did like in the course of one night. And wow. that's why it's so insane. It's so batshit kind of funny because the panic and the momentum that went into writing that quickly kind of re gets reflected in the script. Totally. And, and like your scripts, you know, knowing that we were going to do this, I rewatched your episodes uh, recently. And it's it's so interesting to me because you you hit both like some of the funniest lines in the series you give to Lane Davies in your Tempest episodes, but then in in oh, Brutal yeah, Youth, oh my god, incredible! But um, in Brutal Youth, you you know you've got the fun villain stuff going on, but you do take the time to kind of hit the the soul it's, of their relationship, it's super which is so key to that show. What it's was that? Sorry, it's super, it's super treacly what I did at the end, and I love it. But like that whole thing where he's like, you look beautiful in this light here. Come sit here. Yeah, yeah. And that was the other thing. I, I But that I, was the show. You know, no, I know. But I think the first thing I pitched to Eugenie was I think that they should go up against some villain who has a fabulous lair and that that should be their new house. Oh, dude. And, you and changed so that, the course and, and of so, their final season. Yeah. And so, and so that's what that, that that's sort of where that idea came from. But I remember that uh, I think Terry Hatcher Mm -hmm. was like that whole scene where he's like, here, sit here in the light. I think she was worried that the whole thing was just too, too treacly and she kind of wanted to vomit. And it was, um, and it was Dean who was like, no, this is great. It's going to be super, it's going to be super uh, emotional. So he, he talked her into doing it. Look, Terry Hatcher, I just like, 
I loved writing for her because she had great comic timing. That, well, that's the thing, like rewatching the show. So just to give you like a little context, I watched it as a kid, was was just in love with the show. It's where I learned all the Superman stuff. And then growing up, you you know, some of the early seasons are a little weaker. And then like mid season three, it just becomes this batshit crazy show with a lot of heart to it. And wow. I, I love rewatching it. But rewatching it now, aside from what I discovered with the writing, like, she is incredible. Like you, you hear whatever so you hear about, about Terry Hatcher, but funny and like just always delivers even the crazy stuff when she's a clone or whatever. Like it's incredible. But she was really funny. And, and so I could write stuff like, I think that one of her idols was Lucille Ball. And I really had mm. that in my head when I was writing that stuff where she's going under the table going, like she's going to the table totally. and she has super hearing. So she can she can pretend to drop her, her chopsticks and go under the table and be like, I just knew she'd be able to do it. And she was quite hilarious. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, so like, like I'm saying with, with the humor, you, your episodes really do mix humor well with the emotions of whatever's going on with their relationship at the time. What was that with like both of those key for you for the show? Like, was there ever talk um, amongst yourself and other staff members about the tone, about the audience that you were going for with the show? Um. Like I said, it was a weirdly siloed office. Yeah. Like just... this writer would be working on their episode. This writer would be working on their episode. But, you know, if you look at like what I've done since then, it, it's kind of my thing. You know, it, my thing yeah, is yeah. kind of, it's generally genre. And you put, you might not call 911 or Lone Star genre, but I consider it genre, right? I don't approach those stories any differently than I approached a Firefly episode or an Angel episode mm -hmm. or a Lois and Clark episode. And I think I learned a lot on Lois and Clark more than I knew I did. Because if you look at Brutal Youth, it kind of has all the hallmarks of just what I've continued to do, or even Miximus. Like it's 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 still what I did when I got to Angel. It was yeah. always about how do you take it's an hour with action, with with you know, unironic drama and humor. And that and that's what I think you can do in genre shows, particularly back then, that you couldn't do as much. I mean, until something like Desperate Housewives or these things came along, um, all these different tones living in one show was a little bit unusual. Although, look, Star Trek did it right. I think yeah, totally. When David Gerald wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, I think that was like. <laughs> I remember when I was on the X Files too. I would, you know, Vince Gilligan was telling me that uh, when Darren Morgan first wrote like Humbug and some of those you know, really stand out insane episodes that are yeah. hilarious, that there was a lot of trepidation. They're like, well, is this really the show? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if your thing is good, then it'll be elastic enough to kind of be different things. I mean, I do it on Lone Star and 911 all the time totally. within the course of an episode. It may right. be an absurd, you know, it may be an absurd uh, heist story, but then there's like, you know, real, you know, there's, there, you know, we, we cover things like, uh, uh, racism and and you know serious issues uh, all in the course of an hour and I think that that's you know look it, I think it's more interesting for the audience it sure is hell more interesting for the writer I'm sure I'm sure to be able to jump around like that and not, yeah. not get bored um, it's fascinating to me that you're saying that the season four writers room was siloed when that was like really the season where they started doing many many arcs you know like they experimented a little bit with it in season three but then you get like you kick off the tempest john doe arc yeah. um you, you get you know a bunch throughout the season so like how was that managed with your siloed uh writers because well, I mean, like obviously not, you didn't finish the tempest arc you know like it's no, so I interesting didn't. to me 
Uh, no, I mean, we sort of had a basic overview of what, you know, we knew it was going to be two-parter and we knew it was going to be hmm. this mind control thing. And, and then Fred Willard, you know, is the president <laughs> and then Tempest becomes the president. And like, we sort of knew all those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, weirdly, I, 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 I worked pretty isolated. They gave me notes. They for sure gave yeah. me notes. I just think that, and what was funny is, well, I mean, look, my Lois and Clark story is actually this. So it was my first job. And then in the middle of it, I get this call. Chris Carter wants to meet you. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. So I go, I go down to the, I go down to Fox and I have this meeting with Chris Carter. And I thought it was just going to be this meet and greet. And so we just have a conversation. I'm like, oh, I read this thing and you said this thing. And that, that, that meant a lot to me. And I love the show and blah, blah, blah. And then I forgot all about it. And then a couple of like a month later, or maybe even a week later, who knows what it was. I remember I was sitting in my office at my, at the, I lived elsewhere, but in my office mm -hmm. and I get this call and I'm sitting there writing an episode of Lois and Clark. I don't even remember what it was. And I get this call and it's like, oh, uh, oh, I, we didn't expect to find you home. Um, Chris Carter's calling. I'm like, okay. And he gets on the phone. And he's like, hey, I uh, just want to know. <laughs> How's everything going with Superman? I'm like, fine. <laughs> he wouldn't even call Lois and Clark. Like, Weirdest call. Yeah. He's, okay. like, he's like, Superman. I'm like, it seems good. He's like, well, uh, we just, uh, I want to, um, uh, you know, just let me know because we want to find a place for you here next season at the X Files. Wow. Like, okay. Wow. Cool. So I, and and you, you have to understand, he had read my X-Files. This is what I was going to ask. Like, does that eventually lead you to the X-Files? I guess so. hundred percent. He, he read Incredible. my X-Files. I mean, I was trying to get it to Howard Gordon, who I didn't know, but I knew someone who knew him. Uh -huh. And I'm like, get Howard to read this. Get Howard to read this. And he never read it. We did up working together years later. We created the inside together. Okay. We, we, you know, we're, we're friends, but like he never read my fucking script. <laughs> um, so uh, we worked on Angel together. Uh, so, um, but he wouldn't read it. And um, somehow somebody gave it to David Duchovny, who evidently gave it to Chris. Okay. Now, when I met with Chris, he did not tell me he had read my script. And the thing is, when you write, or at least then, if you wrote an X-Files spec, you do not send it to the X-Files. That's what I'm saying. Like, that must be impressive as hell, too, if he's reading it. And, and like, you've put in all this research to know what these scripts are supposed to look like. Like, it yeah. paid off, obviously. It's incredible. It did. It did. Like, I don't know that I've heard of somebody. I mean, I actually, I do know somebody who, who wrote, uh, like, a Buffy spec who then got on Buffy. Um, but that was Drew Goddard, who ended up, you know, oh, yeah. writing the Marvel. Never heard of him. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh, um, but uh, so, anyway, I didn't know he'd read it. So what you do is you send it to the Lois and Clark staff. You don't send right. it to the X-Files, right? Because it's genre. they don't know what's wrong about it. Exactly. Right. So, but they can see there's humor and there's action and mm -hmm. there's structure and the dialogue seems to be like, like they've seen that show and this right. feels like a show. But you called their office Mulder's office instead of the basement or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, so Chris wants to hire me and, and I still didn't know he'd read my script. I thought he was just going off this weird meeting. So I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So I call my agent. I'm like, Chris Carter just offered me essentially my dream job. Like yeah. I never thought I'd get offered that. And he's like, well, you know, they have an option on you over at, uh, at Lois and Clark. And I'm like, well, surely they'll let me out of my option. I mean, they're not going to keep me from working on a much better show. X-Files. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, um, so now you have to remember, this is year four. It was the last year of the show. However, I was going to say, do we know this? Yeah, yeah. No, we don't. As a okay. matter of fact, 
Jamie Tarsus had picked up the show for two more years. Right. Right. So okay. it was like, so still it there. was like, it was going to be gone for six years. We've picked it up for two more years, not knowing that actually it was going to be going for any more years. No one's happier than Terry Hatcher at the time. Yeah. No one's happier than Terry mm-hmm. So uh, I, and me. So I go, so I go back there, uh, although I, I, I live, I end up living to regret it. So I go back there and, and I said to, you know, Eugenie brings me into her office. She's like, so I understand that Chris Carter's offered you a position on the X-Files and, um, uh, but we have an option on you and we plan to exercise it because you have to understand we've invested a lot in you. And so for, to just let this investment go off and, and be on another show. And I'm thinking you invested a lot in me. I sit in that office and I do, and I write all the fucking scripts. Right. You know, it's not like yeah. you, it's not like you've taught me anything. Anyway, they were, I actually really loved Brad and Eugenie. So, but Eugenie goes, it's not personal. It's just business. And I'm thinking, and what's funny is any, I have never forced anyone to stay on my staff or even in a cast as a cast member who didn't mm-hmm. want to be there. Sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like do that thing where it's like, I have an option on you. Uh, so I, anyway, she wasn't going to let me go. And she said, it's not personal. I said, well, then uh, you'll understand when I say it's not personal that I'm going to pray to whatever God will listen that this show actually gets canceled. And she's like, well, that's fair. Uh, and then it did. <laughs> And then I went to the X-Files and I fucking hated every minute. Really? Yeah, it. I mean, you've got an illustrious career, but I, I noticed that the X-Files entry is, is, is kind of short there. It's super short. I went there for one, I went there for one season and uh, they, that year they had hired like, I think eight new writers. Okay. And in the middle of the year, when everybody's option came up, the only option they picked up was mine. And they let everyone else go that they had hired. And it was just me and some of the old school people, Vince Gilligan, who I adore. It's a hell um, of a spec, Tim. It was a good spec. So <laughs> we were there and we, and um, they, they picked up my option. I was there for the rest of the season. And at the end of the year, uh, Frank brought me into his office and he said, now we're going to actually, we're going to pick up your option. We're going to bring you back next year. Uh, we'd like you to write another script over the hiatus. Um, and I said, or what if we did this? What if I didn't write a script over the hiatus? And what if you didn't pick up my option? And he went, <laughs> really? And I said, I think so. I think so. I wasn't happy. Like yeah. I, had, I had come from Lois and Clark where I had written five or six episodes and, you know, many of them with my name on them and many of them. I was going to say, I know a four. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, they, they love me and they, and I just everything I wrote ended up on the screen. And then I'm at the X-Files where it's like, I finally get to write one. And then I finally get to co-write one. And that was kind of it. And I was like, I just feel like I'm not doing yeah. anything. Yeah. And so I had no place to go. Although uh, Millennium was being made at the time and Ken Horton's assistant, we used to hang out together, Kim Metcalf. And she's like, here, I want to show you something. And she puts in this videotape and it's an ep- episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And she's like, you should be working with Joss Whedon. That's what you should be doing. Wow. I'm like, well, I've never seen that show and I don't get it. It's what, cheerleaders? What is it? She's like, no, it's first player. So she showed me this. She showed me bits of this episode. I'm like, oh, I don't know. So, uh, uh, so I quit. I quit the X-Files and I had no job. I, I mean, they were going to pick me. Like, I, I Evidently, I became a bit of a legend there because I was the only writer to ever say, nah, never mind. Yeah, you walked. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested. And by the way, it was, there was no bad blood. Like, those guys were perfectly nice. I just wasn't feeling it. So, no, I get um, what you're saying. Especially so, after a Lois Clark experience yes. where you have had some, you know. Yeah, and I didn't. And, know, freedom. And it, didn't, it didn't occur to me that this was a dumb move because 
people are, you know, clawing other people's eyes out to get jobs on staffs on a TV right. show. It just never occurred to Let me alone that, that was going to be a problem. So, um, so then I went and then I worked with Howard Gordon. We did a show called Strange World. And then when I was there, I got um, a call that Joss Whedon wants to meet you. And he expects you to come in and pitch five episodes. I'm like, I've never seen this show. So I, I watched a bunch of Buffy episodes. I was going to say, for Buffy, was Angel? Ha- no. No, Angel was about to happen. Okay. But this was this was Buffy, right? Yeah. It was like the year before Angel happened. So I go in and I met with, and I didn't, Angel wasn't even a thing. Right. So I went in and I met with Joss and David Greenwald. And I pitched like these five ideas and Joss had since told me that like, these were the best pitches I'd ever heard. Like you came in that room and it's like, these were like fully thought, like these were great pitches, but he thought I was the angriest man he had ever met. <laughs> He's like, I can't be in a room with this guy. I would not be able to be in a room with this guy, not for five minutes. And that's, that's the report that Howard got back. And Howard's like, he's the angriest man you ever met. Have you met yourself? So then like a year later, they were spinning off angel and Greenwald was like, hey, what about that minor guy? Mm-hmm. Um, can I hire him for Angel? And Joss is like, as long as I don't have to work with him. <laughs> so, so I came in and I worked on Angel. And then, of course, you know, he warmed up. I was going to say, you must have mellowed or something. Well, yeah. no, I, I, didn't know, I didn't mellow at all. As a matter of fact, I came in, I came in with Howard. And uh, um, the, the, the tale is, we came in, they didn't let us do anything. It was just like the X-Files. They were using the Buffy writers to write every script and the mm-hmm. Angel writers were doing nothing. And, you know, granted, most of them kind of couldn't do anything, but they, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything. Howard wasn't doing anything. And we were just waiting to write something. Yeah. And then it got to like episode nine. I think I wrote one script that they then put into the script bank and it was Somnambulist. That was the first thing I wrote. Oh. And then... Um, uh, and then Howard and I wrote Hero, which was the end of Doyle, and it was episode nine. And it was one of those things where, which is the story of my life now, where it's like you're prepping off an outline or a pitch. You don't have a script. They have to find a location. And then the writers go and they like write something really fast. And, and then you, you're constantly revising it because it's really shitty when you first write it. Sure. So Howard took half. I took half. And they're like, you have 40 hours to write this. So like, oh, no. You're also killing a main character nine episodes into this yes, that's series, right. too. It's incredible. Yes. Yeah, and the, by the way, the episode's not that good. So um, it's it's really not. It's like Nazis. I don't know. So uh, that's so right. Howard, Howard took half, and I took half, and we wrote it so fast that we didn't even like put it together. Like I didn't read the half he wrote. He didn't read the half. Wow. Okay. We just like wrote it, smashed it together, and sent it to Greenwald. And then I came in the next day, and I had been up for two days writing. And I come in, and Greenwald's like. So um, Howard really uh, asked me what I thought of this. And uh, I thought I'd, uh, you know, and it's that thing too, where they send you off. They're like, don't worry. We're not going to judge you. We understand you have no time to do this. We, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. We just need to have basically locations and what the props are going to be. And sure, what the basic sure. scenes are so we can prep it. But no one's going to judge you right, which is always a lie. So then I came in the next day and, and, and th- that's what um, Greenwald said. Howard wanted to be, me to be honest. And um, I feel like I owe you the same courtesy. I'm like, I, I didn't ask you to be honest. Who, who's asking this? Yeah. Maybe Howard wanted you to I don't want you to be honest. And he goes, I really liked about half of it. And then the other half I wanted to wipe my ass with. Uh-huh. And I said, well, when you wipe your ass with it, leave the brads in. And then I went <laughs> to my office and I packed it up. And I'm like, I had to, I, by the way, I never put anything on my, I do now because I have a whole building at 20th. Which I have not been able to. I think you're kind of secure. You you can decorate now. Yeah. 
yeah, now I can put things on the wall, but I yeah. never put things on the wall. People are like, why don't you put anything on the wall? I'm like, so I can leave quickly, <laughs> um, which is what I did at the X-Files. I just threw some things in a box, got onto a little golf cart and went over to the Galaxy parking lot. And it was great. Off we go. Okay. So I, I had my little box. I'm like, so I'm leaving. And um, and then, and then the Greenwald spent the rest of the day, pulled me into his office and begged me not to quit, which was great. And he's like, don't you know who my best writer is? I'm like, oh, I really do. Uh, but you're not treating me like that. So I think I'm going to go because I just came off a show where I didn't feel really valued. And anyway, I, I pretty much quit every job I've ever had, even though I, I haven't. But there's always a moment right. where I'm uh, packing up my little box. Getting ready to go. Yeah. And even though even when I'm the boss, right, it's like, I'm going to quit. Oh, shit. Who do I quit to? Uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, then after that, things were great. I mean, I stood up to Greenwald and then. And then I went in and I fixed an episode that I wrote that was awful. The episode was terrible, um, but it was like not cut right. And like, there's a lot you can do in the editing room. Sure. So I went in and I fixed it in the editing room. Josh Which was episode was this? Do you remember? It was called Sense and Sensitivity. And it's still not very good, but it was a lot better by the time. I, I'm sorry to say I don't remember it, but okay. No, it's, it's awful. It was okay. from the first season. Um, uh, and, uh, but I went in and I fixed that as, as well as could be fixed. And then Joss was like, oh, wow, he's good in the editing room and he can do this. And then eventually um, Joss and I became pals. And then when he wanted to um, make uh, Firefly, you know, he came down to the Angel set and said, do you want to come run? He's like, Marty and I are sitting around trying to figure out who we can get. We need somebody like Tim to come run Firefly. <laughs> Why can't we find a Tim? And then Marty was like, Why don't you get Tim? He already works here. And he's like, oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought, I thought Marty. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Marty Noxon for the yeah, listeners, Marty. by the way. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's kind of how that happened. Anyway, now I've, I've got, so now we've got to have field. the angriest man I've I've ever met. I know. Sorry, but like, Lawson it, Clark. It, truly like, you know, I, I, it's bizarre to me that when we get to talk for an hour, we're talking mostly about Lois and Clark. Cause I was a huge Buffy Angel Firefly fan. You know, that's why I first started learning names uh, like yourself. Well, we, can, we can talk more about Lois and Clark. I have other stories. I, yeah, I do have some questions for you. So obviously, you know, you're coming in that season. You, you'd seen a few episodes. We weren't overly familiar with the show, but like, you know. You no, know, when I, when I finally came on, I watched all of them. Okay. All right. So that, by, the all time, right. by the time I actually had a job on the show, I felt it was kind of my duty to watch the <laughs> know what's going on that existed. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so, like, what was there an edict from um, the showrunners at the time, like going into it? Besides, let's get them married very quickly. You know, like, w was there a goal for the season, or just like let's figure out what our arcs are and pepper in our standalones? Yeah, there wasn't really, I don't remember there being like kind of a long-term plan. Okay. Now they may have had one. Like I said, I was a story editor. It's yeah. not like they were consulting with me uh, about what they were going to do. Um, but I think it was, you know, it was sort of the the thing where it's like, okay, well, we know there's going to be this arc and it's going to be three episodes of a thing. And And I mean, often what you'll do is you'll have sort of orange cones that you lay down for a season, right? Sure. Like we did this in season... At the end of season, I don't know, was it season two of Angel? Darla shows up in a box. Yes. Right. They bring Darla back to life, and um, and, and, that, and I remember one, that I was Darla like Darla comes back. Yeah. Yeah, Darla comes back at the end of season two, and I remember walking with Joss and David, sort of by the Santa Monica Pier. We're like, well, what? How should we end the season? And we didn't know what it meant, but we're like, well, let's bring Darla back. And if you think, and people think about Darla now and Julie Benz and that character, but at the time it was like, she'd been in a couple episodes of Buffy. She wasn't. That's, yeah, that's what's fascinating to me about thing. her. Yeah. Um, 
But I mean, to me, they were always sort of George and Martha from uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Just like yeah. like a drunken, you know, boozy yeah. old couple whose child died. Right. Like that, also been crazy. through everything for hundreds yes, of years. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of how I wrote them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There wasn't really an edict. Um, and like I said, they thought that there was going to be two more seasons of the show and then there weren't. Right. And, so there was no there was no rush to to get to anything besides the yeah, wedding at that like, point. It's, I guess. Like, it's like, you know, the, the idea that anyone that these showrunners who say they have it all worked out. Did you see Game of Thrones? I mean, <laughs> it's like it's like, uh, you know, and I and I've even heard that, you know, you like you watch like the most perfect show ever made, which is Breaking Bad. And it's like perfectly symmetrical and mm -hmm. exactly what he was doing. But, but from what I understand, he did not. Right. That, that Vince was just as much in the dark as any of us when it comes to like figuring out what's next. It's all you can do to lay the track down in front of the moving train. You <laughs> don't know where the in, where the last station is. You might have an idea. Like we knew that in season three of Angel that, that Darla comes back, Darla's gonna die, Darla turns back into a vampire because Drusilla shows up and turns her. Right. And so we, we knew that these things were going to happen. We didn't know how. I was going to say, did you know babies happening? Did you know Connor's coming early on? You know? Uh, no, I just kept wow. using this thing where, um, where I'm, I mean, I, I don't remember when we came up with the Darla's pregnant thing, but I just kept pitching. Well, what if, you know, what if like, I mean, I kept pitching the way Darla dies is like she's sneaking around outside Angel's Hotel and she trips and she falls on a piece of wood. And like nobody, <laughs> nobody sees it happen. Nobody like, cares. Yeah. Did you hear that? And then, <laughs> and then it was like, oh, I know it, she can stake herself and that's how she gives birth. Yeah. Um, Still awesome visual. Back to, Lois, back, um, to back to Lois and Clark. You are one of the few writers on that show to introduce a comic book villain into the series uh, with Mr. Mixius Pizlik. Easy for you to say. Um, were you... Um, reading comics at the time, were you influenced by the character? Was this an assignment? Did you pitch for him? Like, how how do you wind I, up I, writing I, I for Mixie? I pitched for him. Okay. It was what was interesting is there wasn't a lot of curiosity or interest. This is a on the show yeah. about the comics. I was the only one who gave shit about the comics <laughs> and the and the and the comic canon. And were so, you actively I, giving a shit? Like, were you reading? Yes, were you a fan as a kid? Yeah. Okay. Of course. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I grew up reading comic books. Cool. Mostly more Marvel than DC, but you know, Superman obviously is like you know the the kind of the perennial yeah. American comic, of course. And um, but so it, it was important to me that we at least show some fealty to the canon of Superman, and uh, go fig. And nobody else sort of cared about that. So there was there were uh, people at DC who were supposed you know who kind of were supposed to have a voice in the show and I was literally the only person that talked to them. Like I would call them up and I'd be like, let's talk about, you know, like they, they taught me how to pronounce mix, mixes Pitalik. Like I will always be able to say that because they taught me how to say it. And who is this at the time? Is this my Carlin? Is this somebody else? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. I think it was actually, I mean, this, forgive me. It was a long time ago. No, no worries. At any point you can say pass in these questions, but yeah. Uh, but, I, but I do believe that's who it was. And so, and, and they were very appreciative that there was a writer on the show who, who, who valued their input. Yeah. So I wanted to do a, a mixy episode and I thought, well, it should be the Christmas episode because he's kind of elfish. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I had definite casting ideas and Howie Mandel was not my choice. <laughs> now, I thought Howie Mandel was terrific, but it's like, 
it's like, you know, Eugenie was like, we're not going to do a thing where the guy is wearing, you know, a purple bowler hat. And I'm like, but that's the character. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so then they ended up dressing him like Q from Star Trek, right? Very, yeah. He looks like a pirate. Um, but, <laughs> but I thought Howie Mandel actually kind of brought a certain um, mischievous quality to it that was, that was in the right spirit of that character. Um, but yeah, I was the I was the only guy who um, who cared about that. Interesting. I mean, so you're writing you're writing um, to the guy in the bowler hat, the the short little guy with the bowler hat and the yeah. I thought suit. it was. I wanted to get Wallace Shawn, you know. Oh my god, that would have been perfect. Interesting. Okay, and, and then like yeah, again, I I love I love Tempest on the show. Your Tempest episode is one of the strongest um, of his appearances. Um, he's got some incredibly funny lines in that when he's digging on the Amish. Um, but then you also coined a political slogan, more or less, that's been haunting us for the past five or so years. So, like, where and does what was, the, what was the what was the, the political slogan? Swear to God, at one point you've got Tempest saying, "I'm gonna I'm gonna become your president and make America great again." It's not quite that, but it, it's you no, know, it kind of close. is, right? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, Donald Trump did not come up with that idea. Like, that's pretty much every candidate in the history of running for the president oh totally it, it's I mean, just like it became like a Joe very Biden, he's like we're going to make america respected again they, they all do that so i mean i wouldn't but there is sort of something trumpy about Tempest for oh sure. totally it became Although a not, very yeah. like memeable moment for a very select few um nerds the past couple of years because of because of that moment yeah obviously from your episode yeah, I, that's why, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, I, I think all of those things that I put in that episode were, you know, sort of like standard campaign cliches. Mm. Were, were there any, you can say past, were there any stories that you had at the time that you, you wished you'd gotten to? Or at that point, before you started thinking of season five stories, you were ready to jump to X-Files? You know, people always ask that question, no matter what the show is, whether yeah. it's Wonderfalls or whether it's Firefly. God, we didn't even talk um, about Wonderfalls, man. Yeah. Okay. They always ask, you know, like, what's the thing you wanted to do? I mean, Fuller actually had some ideas for some things we were going to do in Wonderfalls that would have been awesome. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, by the time you get to the end of a season, or in this case, like right now, I'm shooting episode four of 911, <laughs> season five. And it's mm -hmm. like, I am so far behind on scripts. And I'm about to be so far behind on scripts on Lone Star. And it's always okay. just like, at least with my process, I just don't know that far in advance. Like the yeah. story wants to tell it to me. Like I need to just kind of let the process happen. So I'm never that far ahead where I know what I'm going to do next season. So it's not, I don't think it really is that there were, I don't remember going in and pitching a bunch of stuff that I didn't get to do. Okay. Um, and then like last question, just like industry at the whole right now, like if you're right about this answer, you get to like, this is your guru moment, you know, um, but superhero genre obviously has been reigning supreme for like the last decade in blockbusters. Um, but like, do you think that as a fan, as a nerd, I don't know if you're watching the Marvel or the DC stuff oh, yeah, right now, but do you think it's going to continue? Is that going to burst like the... You know, I, feel like it already I feel like it already has. A I, I, I kind of feel that too. A little I mean, bit Marvel was, but maybe that was the pandemic. You know, their, their whole cycle and the, just how they did all that world building for all those years. And yeah. Finally got to that in, you know, the end game. Um, and it was, 
you know, pretty brilliantly done. And I'm good, I'm still going to watch every Marvel movie that comes out, you know, and 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 hope that I fall in love with it again. I haven't really cottoned too much to the to the Disney Marvel shows. I mean, I did like WandaVision a lot. I thought it was wildly inventive. Yeah. But I and I love Loki as a character. I just I did I didn't I didn't stick with it. Uh and the Captain America thing, no. um i just it was like okay they're gonna preach to me you need to be better it's like okay i mean it's everything's you know incredibly woke and it's like those people are woke but i've been woke on 911 you know long before it was fashionable yeah and we're not even like trying to be you know what i mean like Uh i just try to like write the world as i wish it were and I'm, i'm i'm not and you know i think a little bit when we started lone star there was kind of a preachiness to that pilot which i just kept trying to reel back a little bit as the episodes went along. And I think by the time we got to season two, we'd really found, we'd really found something cool. And by the way, if you haven't seen Lone Star, you should, because Gina Torres is a regular on the show. She started in season two. Like I'm going to, you know, hopefully have some other, you know, beloved cast members from other things I've done uh, coming up. And, um, but I, you know, if you liked any of that storytelling from those shows that are all genre stuff, you'll find a lot of that, on these first responder shows too, to be honest. Awesome. Um, uh, obviously, um, people know uh, to to watch those shows. Um, any anywhere that they should be following you online, or just? I mean, I have a Facebook page. I don't really tweet because Twitter is um, the devil's playground. I mean, it's just it's, <laughs> it's like such a toxic, yeah, place um, that I really try to stay off of it. And I'm just very busy. little good seems to come from Twitter. So it's probably a good. Yeah, little, I don't. Yeah. yeah, it's really it's it's a, it's a, it's a scary place. And there's really nothing you can say. Right. And immediately you'll be surrounded by a school of piranha who will be trying to eat you alive. <laughs> and what's funny is my Twitter handle is canceled again before the before cancel culture was even a thing. Because all my shows have been canceled. Right. Firefly, <laughs> Wonderfalls, Drive, sure. Inside. Uh, terriers terriers like everything, everything got canceled in the first season so that, drive, yeah you know, before american horror story my joke was that i was making limited series before <laughs> they made a comeback and that's only through my thundering failure mm-hmm. um, but what was so great about that is i got to do 13 episodes of wonderfalls and i got to do 13 episodes of terriers so i got to do 13 episodes of a bunch of cool things and i wasn't stuck doing one thing yeah until i got sucked into the clutches of ryan murphy i was gonna say you've you've hung around him for a while um yeah, and no, folks no, like long damn time truly anyone that's listened to this turn on some 911 and then read through tim's imdb and see all the other favorite shows of yours that he's worked on over the years um but as they're doing that uh we should wrap up tim thank you so much for joining me and sharing some lois and clark knowledge um, again, like huge fan of yours since, uh, since high school, but then turns out even before that, when I was a nine-year-old kid watching Lois and Clark, you know, thank you so much, Tim. You're welcome. I'll, uh, I'll send you the link. Hope you like the episode. If, if your guest is interesting, it should be fine. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Huge thank you to Tim Minear and Keith for for putting this together today. Uh, and have to shout out friend of the show, Lorianne Collins and Donna Burton for getting us in touch. Uh, I, I never in my wildest dreams, um, especially when I was in high school, like living off of Angel and Firefly and Buffy and all that, that I thought 
um, I'd get the chance to speak with Tim, uh, let alone interview him for my silly Lois and Clark podcast. Uh, but that was a joy. Um, wanted to put this episode out before we get into the wedding arc, but there is much discussion of frogs and clones and Lex Luthor and everything else coming up soon. So stay tuned. And then we will probably have another interview too before the season comes to a close. But thank you all for listening again. Thank you to Tim uh, and everybody who made this happen. But for Lois and Clark, I'm Matt Truex. Folk off, everybody. We'll see you next time. Oh.